All right, today we're wrapping up our series that we've called Rest for Your Soul based on Jesus' invitation in the Gospels to come to Him, take His yoke, enter into life with Him, learn from Him, and find rest for our souls. Teaching today out of Psalm 1, today's sermon, a rule of life for soul rest. The rule of life is a, a, a worldview, a set of principles and beliefs that you either knowingly or unknowingly live your life by. All of us have a rule for life. The first psalm gives us an opportunity to look at what the rule of life ought to be for a person that is living in tune to God's purposes. So let's read it together. The first psalm is just six verses. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on this law they meditate day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers, but not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Before the scriptures became organized in the way we have organized them, if you had come to this part of scripture, let's say in the medieval ages before mass printing of the Bible, you came across a a handwritten manuscript from that day This would not have been called Psalm number one, and it would probably also have been written in red ink. This was not considered one in a list of Psalms. This poem is considered the introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And the Psalms are poems about the whole spiritual experience. Everything from the love of God and and His greatness and glory, as well as His mercies and kindness, to the, the wrestling of faith and wondering what God's doing and complaining and then ultimately submitting to God. Psalms is a set of poems that describes our life in God. And this poem, this psalm, helps us understand the whole. And so in that sense, Psalm 1 truly is a rule of life in that it is the summation, the guide to this whole precious hymn book, which was all about the life of God's people. This poem falls under two categories. It's a Torah poem because it exalts and speaks of the importance of the Word of God and the law of God. But more importantly for us, it's a wisdom poem. And wisdom poetry in Scripture is characterized by several things. One, it always points to this word, blessed. Many of us in our Bible, the word blessed or blessed is translated as happy, right? Happy in our culture falls well short of the biblical concept of blessedness because happiness is dependent on what happens in life. If good things happen, I'm happy. Blessedness has nothing to do with your circumstances. The biblical idea of blessedness is a happy and fulfilled condition in the hearts of those who revere the Lord and follow His ways. 
Blessedness can be a constant in a believer's life no matter what circumstance they're in. (laughs) Why settle for happiness? When you can have blessedness. The second characteristic of wisdom poetry is that it's constantly contrasting two very distinct ways of living. And those two ways in this psalm are described as the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. Now, we're going to come across some very strong words, and we're going to talk about what they really mean. So I ask you to stay with me, even though immediately some of you get a pretty negative response to hearing about wicked people and mockers. And now these are just names we call people. If you have an opposing political viewpoint, you're wicked. Or we think something's good and we call it wicked. It's just kind of confusing (laughs) up here in Boston. So stay with me as we get into that. And what this psalm does is over six verses, two verses at a time, it gives us three contrasts related to these two ways of living. And it's very clear. It's very what we would call black and white. Now, in our culture... We are more and more conditioned to live in what we call the gray of of moral issues, the gray of convictions and the like. Because of that, it's uncomfortable when the Bible tries to pull away all that gray space that you and I like to live in. There's lots of stuff where things are not quite so black and white, right? And we need to be gracious about that with each other. But there are things that God is 100% clear about. And that's when we are most uncomfortable with the Word of God. When we're living in the gray morally, that's not a good gray. That's a smokescreen. It clouds our ability to see from which world perspective, from which rule of life we're really proceeding. Wisdom poetry clears away all that fog so you can see where your feet are actually standing. Because you can be trying to do all the right things religiously as a Christian, and you're not experiencing that soul rest. Whatever we describe as blessedness, you would say your experience in life and in your heart and even in in your faith is anything but that. And that may very well be because you're doing all those right things from the wrong path. Doing the right things for what ultimately are the wrong reasons. And this is an opportunity for you to see if you're really in the way, the path that leads to that place of of rest for our souls and, and true blessedness. So let's look at these three contrasts. The first is a contrast of outlook. Let's read the first two verses again. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers, but their delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So in this contrast, we first look at what we shouldn't do, or what we've seen as the way of the wicked, and we see two collections of three words, three verbs and three conditions. Do not walk, stand, or sit. Now these are not only postures or actions, they're a progression. When we say do not walk in the way of the wicked, that's not talking about being in relationship with people. We're called to love our neighbor, to be engaged with the world around us, to reach out with the hands and feet of Jesus, to be the salt of the earth. You need to make contact for salt to have impact. 
This isn't about isolating ourselves from people. When it talks about walking, it means being in step with. In other words, your life is synchronous with the way the world, which is set apart from God, you're, you're in tune to that. You're beginning to match that rhythm in terms of your life. To stand is when we reach a point where we actually find that we're in agreement with that way of thinking. I'm with them in terms of how I think about things. And then sitting is deciding I'm going to stay in this way of thinking. This is where I'm going to settle in and live my life, to be at home with, to settle in. And that's not only one of three possible ways you might be overly connected to the thinking of those aspects of our culture that are opposed to the things of God, but you may be on a trajectory towards becoming more at home in that way of thinking and less at home in thinking kingdom, thinking godly things. And then in relation to these postures or actions, he describes three types of people that are along this way. And again, they can be a progression. So what does the word wicked mean if it's not just a hyperbolic characterization of somebody? All the word wicked means in Hebrew is a person that has been found guilty by a judge. It's a legal term. And let me say this. From biblical perspective, there isn't a person here who can't be described in that because of our sin, we have been found guilty in the moral court of God. The word sinner is not referring to just the acts that are wrong, because we all do that. The Bible calls an act that is apart from God's purposes and, and plans sin. But the word sinner in Hebrew there is more a lifestyle. This is a person that by habit, by choice of life, is consistently making decisions that dishonor God and are not according to his will. And then the word mocker is when a person is so committed to that way of living that is so opposed to the things of God that they actually become aggressive critics and they disdain verbally the righteous things of God. Now, let me ask a question. Do you think, like I do, that our culture has reached the point where there are many that have become mockers of the things of God? A mocker looks at the very things that God holds as precious and belittles them, and even calls them wicked and evil, blessing what God calls sin, and diminishing and calling evil what God calls right. By way of example, and this is not meant as a political statement, one of those that ran for president recently was quoted as saying that those who follow historic Christianity are actually wicked and evil in their thinking. That's the way of the mocker. And our culture is moving in that direction. And it's very hard as Christians to not want to separate ourselves from that characterization. That's the power of those that reach a point where they disdain what God blesses as good. This is the way that we are not to follow. It's not the blessed path. Contrast that those that are on the blessed path, rather than disdaining the things of God, delight in the things of God. That person's delight is in the law of the Lord. This is a person that finds satisfaction, meaning, and purpose, not only in God's Word, but through God's Word, God's ways. And this is something that is true of them day and night, just like the person that has chosen to sit 
in the seat of the path of the wicked or those that are opposed to the things of God, this person rests and lives in the very things of God. So the word of God, when he says his delight is in the law of the Lord, talking about scripture, a person that is experiencing a truly blessed life, the, the life that God created us for, is a person that treats the Bible not just as an encyclopedia <laughs> for them to go to when they, they need to improve their belief system and their knowledge of things. They don't treat the Bible as a how-to book, otherwise it just sits on the shelf. You know I've been doing a lot of work on my house in order to get it ready to sell, and years ago I bought this book at Home Depot that was a DIY, do-it-yourselfer project book. I learned a lot of stuff through that. Some of you, that's how you treat the Bible. It's your go-to when you're stuck. That will not lead you to the blessed life. Scripture is God's very word to you. You've settled in the very word of God, which then points you to the way of God, the way of blessing. That leads us to the second contrast. The first contrast was about outlook. The second contrast is about outflow. What comes out of life lived in one way or the other way, and that's verses three and four. That person who delights in the law of the Lord, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do prospers. I want that, <laughs> but not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. The author now moves to helping us look at what these two ways of living produce. And he starts with the blessed path. Just look at that. Trees. Derek, our director of student ministries, works for the Worcester Tree Initiative. You can thank Derek and his crew for giving us illustrations of the blessed life all over this city, Derek. Thank you very much. Trees are amazing. They're, they are the source of life for this planet and for you and me. Vitalina is here. Her dad is a landscape architect. And one of the things I learned from her dad is that when a tree's unhealthy, you don't treat the trunk, you don't treat the leaves, you treat the roots. The tree that is blessed is planted in the right place. Its root system is deeply nourished. Let me, let me look at these words for you. Planted in this Hebrew is an intentional act. We're not talking about a squirrel that happened to drop an acorn in the right place and therefore a tree happened. In fact, it could be translated transplanted. That's why it's a great analogy for life in Christ because all of us at one time were living in the way of the wicked. That was the natural course of our life. And then we came to Jesus Christ and we've been transplanted into a new way of life. So this is an intentional act of God, but it's also something that we participate in. It's an action that moves us to a a new path by streams of water. That's about our souls, the root system of our life being deeply nourished and always connected to that which gives life. And that allows us to produce fruit in abundance and in season. I love that. The blessed life reproduces, it, it's in abundance, it gives life to others. It contributes. It, it's amazing. I use that word ever hyphen green not to talk about evergreens, which I know don't put out fruit. They make nuts, if I'm not mistaken, which is why I was born from evergreens. When you are this tree planted in 
God's word, when you are living in this way, when this is your rule of life, you are never out of season. Every season is a fruit-bearing season. God is always at work in the seasons when it feels dry in your life, when you're in difficult, cold weather in your spirit and in your circumstances, or when you're in the warmth of abundance, all those seasons are fruitful for God's people. There is never a circumstance in your life out of which God can't bear eternal fruit. It's incredible. I want this life. Everything this person does prospers. Now this is where our health and wealth gospel propagators would say, see that? You do all these things and your checkbook will begin to bulge. The idea is that prosperity is material, but that's not the Hebrew idea of prosperity. The idea of prosperity from a biblical blessed life perspective is that God is bringing forth his purposes in us. And God will do that when we are short on cash as much as when we're heavy on cash. I would like to be a test case for the heavy on cash side of it, but I have seen God prosper his purposes through me far more when I've been experiencing seasons of scarcity. And you know why? It drives me to my knees. This tree planted in this place committed to this way of living is a tree that bears fruit and prospers in God's way in all circumstances. The other way is characterized as chaff. How many of you know what chaff is? It's the casement around grain that has no nutritional value and must be removed before that grain can be used. The process is known as winnowing. And in ancient times, on a breezy day, the harvest would be tossed up in the air. And you know why that happened? Because chaff has virtually no weight to it. They throw it up in the air, and the wind blows away the chaff, just like this writer is referring to. And the grain drops down and is used to give life. That's the outflow of a life that is lived contrary to God's ways. The chaff. There's nothing of value. I, I, I want you to understand, even if you are attempting through your own effort to follow a Christian way of living, if your basic belief and operation and choices are rooted in the things of the world around us that are independent of God, and you choose that way, you are going to find in the final analysis when your life is measured it will be blown away like chaff. There will have been no true life in it, no purpose in it. The first contrast is about our overall outlook. Second is about outflow. The third contrast is about outcome. What's the trajectory of these two ways of thinking. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to 
destruction. So we're talking about trajectory. We're talking about the quality of our life going forward that we can expect, but then also the eternal end of that life. What is the trajectory? And what he's saying is, those of us who are still under God's judgment, living in a way that is condemned by God, but yet that we insist on staying in, in the end, our life is pointless, like chaff. It's blown away. Nothing of value to pass on into eternity. And the eternal end is destruction, separation from God. That's the trajectory of the people that live life by their own authority and wisdom and contrary to how God has called us to live life. And then there's the righteous. The righteous not only live this incredibly productive and fruitful life, but they have the promise of God's presence throughout the whole, his guidance. They're in relationship with him, and in the end, that way leads to eternal life. Now, let's just look at these two descriptives, and let's admit, only in church do you get these descriptives, the wicked and the righteous, but we come to them for what they really mean, not, not what the mockers have turned these into. Let's look at these two descriptives. We have learned that the wicked are those who stand in judgment before God because of their sin. So let me ask you a question. At one time or another, doesn't this include all of us? Exactly. The Bible says that is true of all of us. All have sinned and therefore falling short of God's standard. All of us have failed God's judgment. We start life planted in that way. So then how do we move from that way and that categorization to becoming the righteous? How does this happen? Does it happen because we get our act together and stop doing wrong things? Well, yeah, if you were able to stop doing wrong in your life, yeah, you could be called the righteous, but how's that going for you guys? Because ultimately we can't make that change. And that's why Paul goes on in Romans 6 and says, the wages of sin is death. That's the judgment that we are under. But the gift of God is eternal life. So how do we recategorize ourselves from being those under condemnation to those that are called part of the righteous way? Well, that's God's work. Paul says in Romans that a righteousness from God has been provided. That is not about what we can accomplish. It's not about us obeying God's law perfectly because we can't. In fact, the law of God was to help us realize that none of us can do it. That's what Paul says. By the Old Testament law, we become mindful of our sin. And so a righteousness has been provided us by God through Jesus. Eternal life is the gift of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's when we come under God, that judgment passes over us. And we have been found righteous. If any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. We have literally been transplanted from one life and one trajectory to another life in the spirit and power of God, rooted in the word of God, whose trajectory is now eternal life and whose pathway can be blessed and in which we can find rest for our soul. Wow. 
So you have to ask yourself, how would God characterize me right now? If I, if I take away all that's offensive to me about both these terms, how would God characterize me? Where do I stand in this? Do, is a transplant necessary for me? Do I need to come into relationship with God because of what Jesus did on the cross and no longer stand by my own moral record and because of that be worthy of judgment, but to stand in Christ as forgiven and righteous? You need to ask yourself that. And, and you can be transplanted today. But Christians, you need to ask yourself, not whether in your heart or in your mind you are committed to this path of God, but if in practice and reality you're still trying to live this new life, but living it in the old way. Still letting the group think of the world, the pension towards self-dependence, the moral compromise, the smokescreen of moral grayness to be where you live. What today has done for you through this gift of God's Word is to blow away all that smoke screen so you can look at your feet and see if you're truly landed in the ways of God or if in practice you're still living in the old ways. And that will help differentiate between those of us as God's people who are not in soul rest and those of us who are. Those of us who are not experiencing God using us fully for His purposes are not at joy and fulfilled in his way are not truly experiencing the blessedness that comes from that life and those of us that are. I'm going to say one more time the big idea for the series. The default posture for a child of God because of Jesus' invitation to come into life with him, the default response in all circumstances ought to be Rest for your soul. We learn that we can rest because of the cross. Because of what Christ did for us, we can make these declarations. I'm forgiven. I'm free. I'm loved. I'm safe. I can rest because Christ did what I couldn't do for my sins to be forgiven. We can rest in the fact that we are children of God, inheritors. God who we might fear as judge in all of his greatness, we now call Abba Daddy. And that Daddy says, nothing can pluck you out of my hands. My love for you is infinite and unlimited. We can rest in, in that security that we are Abba's child. We learn that we can rest because of the resurrection. That ultimate concern that keeps us awake at night of our eternal Direction. We can rest in the fact that Jesus said, because I live, you can live. Let me ask you a question. Where do we learn all of these things? Where is the source out of which we remind each other of these things, that we can live in these things day and night so that these aren't just beliefs that we check off on some sheet of paper in our Bible or on our website as a church, but they become the very rule of life for us as God's people. Where does all that come from? It's the Word of God. It's being deeply rooted in the very God-breathed words that speak peace, be still, to His children today in the same way Jesus spoke that 
to the wind and the waves. Father, I pray that we would see this incredible gift you've given us, this salvation that can be ours, that we can move from those that are under your judgment to those that are in your blessedness, counted as righteous because of Jesus. I pray for those here who know they need to make that transition. I pray this would be the day that they step into that life by surrendering their authority over their life, by acknowledging their need for forgiveness and uh, receiving it from Jesus, surrendering to him as Savior and Lord. And for us as Christians, Father, may we get a clear picture of the ideas and priorities out of which we're living our life. And Father, if there's changes that need to happen so that we can walk in that blessed way and be deeply rooted in the life-giving flow of the Word and the way of God, Father, will you do that work in us? Will you do that because we know all of that work is out of love? We know for your children there's, there's only godly work to bring about the best in our lives. Father, may we allow you to do that work in us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.